Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we're speaking with Rocio Gomez about her book, Silver Veins, Dusty Lungs, Mining, Water, and Public Health in Zacatecas, 1835-1946. The book was published in 2020 by the University of Nebraska Press as part of the Mexican Experience series. The author, Dr. Gomez, is Assistant Professor of Latin American History at Virginia Commonwealth University. Rocio, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So as you put it in the first lines of Silver Vane's Dusty Lungs, this is a book about the earth, how different groups used it, and how it made them sick. Before we learn about this story, could you share with us how you came to it? Yeah, so uh, there are personal and professional reasons uh, why I chose this topic. Um, And it kind of begins back in childhood. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. And one of the places that I lived was in northern Nebraska, just across the state line from Pine Ridge Reservation. And in one, uh, one of the places that my family and I used to go to uh, on weekends to just relax and enjoy ourselves uh, was a lake. And uh, next to this lake was a playground. And I remember uh, those memories uh, so vividly. Um, But one particular occasion, um, on one particular occasion, we visited that lake and we saw that this lake had been drained. And we saw dead fish on this muddy lake bed. And then we saw turtles struggling through the mud. And this was a recreation area that was uh, important to the indigenous community and also to my family, just for a place to, just to have a place to unwind on weekends. Um, So looking back on why that happened, I... I now realize that that was when the Ogallala Aquifer had just been uh, tapped and had been, and that water had led to the draining of that lake. Um, but yet this was a community space, and I often ask myself, why was that lake targeted? Why was that, why was it okay to take that space away from our community? Um, so that was uh, one of my earliest memories with regards to how power dynamics can change landscapes, how power dynamics can change access to water. Um, on top of that, I went to grad school in Arizona, and one of the um, topics of discussion in Arizona is so frequently water, um, namely because of the Central Arizona Project, or CAP. And for those that don't know, the Central Arizona Project is a 300-plus-mile canal that basically brings water to southern Arizona. 
Um, at the same time that I was in grad school, uh, there were discussions about the Rosemont copper mine and um, having that mine in such close proximity to Tucson. Um, there were discussions of how that mine would affect water resources, um, community health, um, but also um, how it would affect the Saguaro National Park. So these topics were very much at the forefront of my, of my thought processes as I came to the dissertation stage. Um, and then as another personal reason is that um, um, my family has close ties to the state of Zacatecas and the city of Zacatecas in particular. And I had seen on so many summer visits with my family um, to had seen with my own eyes on these summer visits that um, mining was still taking place in that state, that it was still very much a fixture on the Zacatecas landscape. So kind of bridging, I think, my personal life with my professional life is that um, when I got to grad school, I wanted to learn more about Zacatecas mining, but I noticed that there was a gap in the historiography. Most of the literature on Zacatecas tends to emphasize colonial silver, silver mining, and there's very little written about it in the, in moder in the context of modern Mexico. Um, so I wanted to contribute to that historiography and help build that part of the historiography. Um, in addition, this was also around the same time that I came under the influence or was very much influenced by the work of uh, Nancy Langston's work on, on, uh, on hormone disruptors, but also Mirna Santiago's work on um, oil in the Huasteca region. Um, so both of those books were highly influential on, um, on, on my own research. Yeah. Thank you. So I think we'll hear more um, going forward about the specifics of Zacatecas as a place. But I wonder if first, if you could explain to listeners what you mean by an ecology of extraction and how this idea helps you tie together a book that's about mining and water and public health. Yeah, so the ecology of extraction is a term is a term that I used in the book that combines political ecology and social ecology. Uh, political ecology um, came out of the 1970s, more specifically Eric Wolf's work uh, with regards to um, resources and ownership. Um, there's political ecology looks at the uh, power dynamics involved with regards to access. Um, and really ask the question of who has access to these um, environmental resources and who owns them and who is controlling them. And it also asks um, um, questions with regards to, um, to um, really who are the people that are marginalized and are kept out from this access as well. Um, in terms of social ecology, I'm looking more at the relationship of, um, of how humans interact with their environment and more specifically uh, the ideas that they have of how the environment should be used. So together, I use the ecology, the term ecology of extraction to combine both of these terms, the political ecology being 
if you can imagine almost an axis, um, political ecology being the vertical axis and then social ecology being the horizontal axis in order to understand um, how um, ideas of the environment um, and how ideas regarding mining uh, really uh, were affected by the power dynamics from the top down, um, but also on the social level, who were the people that clashed with these ideas and how they um, absorbed and um, fought back and resisted and adapted to these um, ideas regarding access to water and access to, uh, to silver as well. So let's begin with the early history of mining in Zacatecas and some of the sources that you found that help us understand conflicts over resources in the early 19th century. Well, with regards to the sources in the early 19th century, um, it was really uh, just found, I just found lists and lists of denuncios. And denuncios were basically claims that were laid out by people who wanted to purchase mines. Um, mining um, in Zacatecas, um, if you can imagine a silver mine as um, not just having, not just being like a hole in the side of a mountain, um, but rather being an entrance on the side of the mountain and then branching off into many different directions and many different branches. So it was possible for people to own a mine right next to someone else's mine in the same mountain. Um, so these denuncios allowed people to, um, allowed these denuncios basically uh, laid out the, an individual's claim to a particular mine, saying that they had the intent to buy this mine. These denuncios were frequently published in newspapers. And then anyone that owned that mine um, could say, actually, I'm the owner, and they could speak up and block that sale. Um, sometimes you had, um, you had individuals who watched a particular mine, and if they saw no activity in that mine uh, after a certain period of time, they would go ahead and say, and they would say to the local mining council, um, no one is working this mine. It's been abandoned. I want to purchase that mine. And then the denuncio would go in the newspaper. Um, unfortunately, um, these denuncios were also used um, um, to swindle people out of their claims for particular mines. Um, early on um, in in um, in after the wars of independence in Mexico, um, early on, uh, foreigners could not own land um, in Mexico, but still, they were able to maneuver themselves into the boards of uh, particular mines or governing boards of particular mines. Um, this um, allowed for foreign interest to slowly creep into Mexico. Um, at the same time, you have um, um, individuals who were using mine, uh, using mines only as a, a quick investment and for a quick turnaround. Inevitably, you have um, a clashing with agricultural interests in the state of Zacatecas. Zacatecas has always been a state that is um, caught between agriculture and mining. Um, and this is very clear um, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Um, 
in this time period, you have uh, mining um, mines butt heads with uh, with farmers, in particular with water access. Um, and so this is the question of how power dynamics really come into um, the uh, governing of resources, but also resource management and mining management as well. Another way that mining is inevit inevitably going to clash with agriculture in this context is that many uh, farmers, many individuals, many residents of Zacatecas rely on mines for their water. Um, when uh, in the process of mining, as uh, miners are digging down uh, into the, what is the water table, they will run into water. And Zacatecas sits on many aquifers. And so you will see, um, you, it's often the case that miners will then have to pump um, the, the water out of the mine um, and into streams, or, or they'll, if they're lucky, they'll have residents lining up with their buckets in order to get the water themselves. Um, but when the process of, uh, of draining water from these mines, you, you see uh, um, farmers who will later say, well, I didn't have access to this water. I was never told I had access to this water or that uh, so-and-so is blocking my access to this water. So this is the first hint of what's to come for later in the 20th century. So um, as we learn through your book, the mining that is happening in Zacatecas in this era and going forward has impacts on the environment and the water supply in particular. So in your second chapter, you're talking not just about these impacts, but also how Zacatecanos or people um, from Zacatecas, how they thought about water and how they understood it. So can you tell us a little more about the cultural meaning of water and how you were able to reconstruct that history? Sure. Um, it's during this time period that you have, and this is really, I think, where the history of medicine comes into it. It's during this time period that you have uh, miasma theory uh, very much in, in mode and very much ingrained in people's consciousness when it comes to water. Uh, flowing water, Clear water uh, was, was equated with good health, that it was safe to drink, uh, that it was good for you, um, and versus uh, standing water or, or muddied water, foamy water, uh, was seen as unhealthy and something dangerous. Um, and this is not going to extend to just large bodies of water. It's also going to extend to puddles um, and uh, small ponds as well. Um, so when it comes to the cultural meaning of water, um, mining, mine water, that is the water that came from mines, was seen as uh, clear. It was uh, easy access. And so it was, um, it was something to be valued and something to be used in the gardens uh, um, and something to be uh, cooked with um, and so on um, versus water that was flowing from outside the mine where slurry had just been dumped or where, where dirty, uh, grainy water had just been dumped as well. This was seen as dangerous water. Um, on top of that, um, Zacatecas is an arid region. Um, so people's relationship with water and ideas regarding water is already fairly fraught. 
in that sense. Um, and so when it rained, um, rains were seen as something valuable, something that would be um, crucial for the next uh, crop. Um, but at the same time, there's um, a threat that water is going to uh, cause mudslides, where it's going to cause flooding. And so you have um, this very tense duality between um, the good water and the bad water uh, in the city. And it all really depends on uh, where people are in the city. Um, when there is a cause for concern is where when you start seeing um, homeowners in the well-to-do parts of the city um, start being, when they start being affected by mudslides, by uh, torrential rains running through, um, causing uh, flooding through their front yards and, and front uh, patios, um, that is when people start getting concerned. Um, but one of the great frustrations I had with this book is that in, if you look on the cover, there's an aquifer, excuse me, an aqueduct um, right on the cover. And yet um, and this aqueduct is very much a symbol of Zacatecas. It's part of the Zacatecas skyline. Um, it's, um, it's so characteristic of Zacatecas. Now, in addition to La Bufa, the hill, that you see um, that's so famous that you see in one of the pictures in the book. So, but yet this aqueduct um, is not um, is not very well documented in the in the archives, um, even though it is this cultural symbol of the city. Um, so, and it, but in a way, I think that it serves as a symbol of how complicated uh, the city's relationship with water really is. Thank you. Um, so the mine in, in your book, um, you explained to us that it's a place, uh, a site where different kinds of violence can happen, whether criminal, accidental, and also the violence of disease. So could you tell us maybe one or two stories about these different types of violence and what connects different kinds of harm and death in the mines? Yeah. And so, um, in terms of um, violence, I, I, I looked at uh, not only criminal violence, but I also looked at uh, accidents and the violence against the body um, in the mine. Um, mining itself um, is, a, um, is a type of violence, you can say, um, not only in, um, in the actions that are done to uh, excavate and uh, excavate a, a mine and, and excavate a mountain, um, but you can also look at the uh, violence that's done in the human on the human body. Um, so miners um, and engineers were subject to this violence through accidents and through um, through occupational disease, which I get into further later on in the book. Um, but in these particular accidents, you had um, engineers. Um, and miners uh, frequently suffer from um, falls um, in addition to um, accidents involving explosions um, and also uh, uh, accidents when it comes to uh, machinery as well. Um, so in 
I, I wanted to emphasize that these are not natural um, results of uh, mining, but it really tend to be products of the introduction of technology to a workforce that perhaps was not trained, um, that perhaps was not alerted to the dangers of these technologies as well. In terms of, um, and in one of the cases, I, I talk about um, a young miner who had lit a fuse for a stick of dynamite and was waiting around the corner for the explosion to go off. And then when the, when the explosion did not go off, did not happen, he uh, ran around the corner only for the explosion to then go off. And he will die from his injuries because the mine was so far from the city center and from the nearest hospital. Um, on another occasion, I, I talk about um, uh, how an engineer, um, from an engineer in, uh, a, with a particular um, Mexican mine, um, Mexican-owned mine, um, was walking across a beam. And it was a, a German engineer who actually told him, no, don't walk across that beam. And, and the Mexican engineer will, will sadly fall uh, several meters um, to his death. So, and so there are several uh, occasions where you have um, several of these accidents happening because of perhaps impatience or um, um, or simply ignoring warnings. Um, with regards to criminal violence, I I've, I thought that those cases were interesting, namely because of where the violence took place. The violence happened in the mine. On one occasion, you had um, two individuals who had quarreled over a particular over the loan of a tool, and when when someone refused to return the tool, um, and the other person asked for it back uh, repeatedly, and then um, the other person attacked him and left him and threw basically threw him down an open shaft. Um, so the resulting violence there is just um, what just illustrated the um, the way individuals interacted in the mine, but also how this mine is the mine is seen as kind of a liminal space where it's uh, just far enough from supervision um, from uh, the city, and in particular, an empty mine at night um, was an area that um, was uh, really open for shady things to happen. Yeah. Um, would you talk now about the politics of water during the late 19th and early 20th centuries? And I'm wondering what makes Zacatecas a special case for understanding how experts and leaders in this era responded to natural disasters and epidemics. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for your question. With regards to water, um, water is... Um, is water legislation is really going to take off in 1888, and it's going to happen actually under Porfirio Diaz. Um, and Porfirio Diaz is going to lay out um, that the law that says that all navigable rivers are under federal jurisdiction. And this law will be expanded on the eve of revolution on 1910. And then, of course, um, by that point, um, you really have um, 
a question of how water is being used in individual farming communities in Zacatecas, but also how is the mining industry uh, using that particular water source. So in the late 19th century, you have um, the doors opened for, uh, for an investment in mining through two uh, principal laws. Um, the one that um, you have the 1884 law, but then the one that uh, the mining code of 1892 is the one that says that a foreign forward interest can own land, but they can also they can also own uh, subsoil minerals and, in addition, any waters that they discover in the process process of extraction and excavation. This limits the access that individuals can have to water sources um, in mines. And for the farmers that depended on, on those water sources from mines for irrigation, for, for, their, for domestic use, for their animals, um, are really shut out in the process. Uh, in terms of what makes Zacatecas a, a notable case of, how, of epidemics, and uh, it's and when we say epidemics, we we could talk about um, um, typhus, but also we could talk about um, the various uh, ailments uh, such as diphtheria and uh, um, that swept through the through the region as well. Um, Zacatecas is especially notable because you have so many seasonal workers in mining and agriculture. So individuals that were exposed to typhus uh, on, on farms where they worked um, would later go and take typhus to mines or they would take them to the city center. In the process, um, they would contaminate and other populations and they would uh, spread the disease further. Um, so Zacatecas is especially notable because of how isolated the region is. Um, but it also has um, a streak of, of um, independence in many ways. Um, I mentioned early in the book of how it, it attempted to secede from Mexico in 1835. But also, uh, this is the, the, the region that um, really attempted to, um, to curb Benito Juarez's power uh, when he uh, ascended to the presidency. So there is um, a Zacatecas has always uh, has a streak of independence, as I said, but at the same time, it is very much um, um, underfunded in this time period, even though it remains, um, especially for the DS presidency, one of the richest areas in Mexico when it comes to silver mining. There isn't a, um, a medical school there. And there isn't uh, a well-funded hospital there. So really, when it comes to um, the case of Zacatecas and epidemics, uh, we really see how, uh, how limited its resources were, but at the same time, how, how that was by design in many cases. Your last chapter focuses on debates involving experts and also workers about which diseases were caused by working conditions in the mines and which diseases were not. 
So could you tell us a bit about the two conditions that were important to these debates, namely tuberculosis and silicosis? And also, you know, thinking about the context of the Mexican Revolution going on, how these debates illuminate workers' struggles for rights um, in this era. Yeah, thanks for your question, Rachel. Um, in in terms of the revolution and uh, workers' rights, and as well and occupational diseases, I think it's important to keep in mind um, the um, legislation that was outlined initially outlined to protect workers. Um, so you have uh, Article 123, Section 14, uh, which states that workers that are injured on the job were um, allowed and were allowed to seek compensation for their injuries. Um, in addition, in 1931, you have the Ley Federal del Trabajo. And the Ley Federal del Trabajo reiterates this right, that workers have the right to seek compensation. Um, on top of that, the Ley Federal del Trabajo has a list of occupations um, and their associated diseases. So, for example, if you looked up uh, minors, you would see that their occupational disease would be, one of their occupational diseases would be silicosis. Um, and then if you looked up mozos del anfiteatro, or the workers that worked in uh, medical amphitheaters, the, one of the, their associated diseases would be bovine tuberculosis. And so you have um, these diseases. Um, both of these diseases uh, target the lungs. And so let me explain a little bit about the, the pathology of both of these diseases. So uh, silicosis um, is a disease that typically occurs because of high uh, levels of dust in the atmosphere and high levels of dust in the mine, especially when there isn't much air circulation. So you have silicosis broken down into, um, into three, three stages of the disease. Um, so in simple silicosis or classic silicosis, uh, the workers inhale the dust and, uh, and then are left with symptoms of silicosis. And this could happen, these symptoms can appear over the course of in years, especially if the worker is exposed to low levels of dust for several years at a time. And then you have accelerated silicosis, which can happen in one or two years at moderate levels of dust, and then acute silicosis, which can happen just in a matter of weeks when the workers are exposed to extremely high levels of dust for long periods of time. Um, so in all of these diseases, you have, in all of these levels of silicosis, you have a progression of the disease. And so what does silicosis do? Um, when the worker inhales dust, uh, the dust is absorbed into the lungs uh, where many of the, of the particles will stay. And the body's natural response is to build uh, a fibroid around these individual pieces of, of particles of dust. And so over time, you have um, fibroids that build up inside the lungs that limit um, the expansion of in the inhalation process when the worker takes a breath. And also, um, do not do a good job when uh, in absorbing the oxygen because that's what our lungs do. They absorb the oxygen 
and put bring oxygen into our bloodstream. So with with um, inhalation inhibited and uh, absorption of oxygen inhibited, uh, you have a telltale cough that the workers uh, develop. And um, so they begin with this cough and then it, it becomes increasingly frequent. Um, in accelerated silicosis, or excuse me, in acute silicosis, the workers then have other symptoms um, such as uh, weight loss, um, difficulty breathing, and difficult holding their difficulty in holding their breath, and very low energy levels. It is at this acute stage that you can have the added infection of tuberculosis um, it, in workers' lungs. Um, their immune system is is low. Um, the the cilia, the, the little tendril, little finger-like uh, uh, tissue that we have in our lungs, those are disabled. Um, and so it makes them much more susceptible to TB. Silicosis TB is it's a disease in itself. And it's very much tied to the occupation and where the where the um where the work where the person worked, um, so um, you have um, uh, silicosis associated with metal mining or uh, mining that has high levels of dust, just like you have um, a black lung that's associated with coal mining and asbestosis, which is associated with um, the mining of asbestos. So it really depends on the materials that the miners are working uh, working in and working to extract. In terms of how, um, how this involves the revolution is that you, um, that workers are going to be uh, subject to, um, are going to seek compensation, but at the same time, they're going to be subject to federal arbitration. Uh, the federal government, uh, because of the overwhelming silicosis claims against mining companies, the federal government will be seen as, um, as be seen as the mediator between mining companies and uh, and workers and their unions. Um, in order for workers to seek compensation, or in order for them to receive compensation, um, they have to go through a very bureaucratic process. Uh, namely because they have to present uh, a case through science, through medical science, uh, in order to back up their claims for compensation. So um, on a typical, in a typical examination, um, they would go in and to see their doctor. The doctor would ask them several questions regarding their um, occupational history. They would then... Um, have to cough up some sputum in order to submit a sample. Um, they would then be subject to a chest x-ray and in some cases additional exercises in order to see um, if, to see if they are able to catch their breath in order to perform um, in day-to-day life. Um, after going through this very time-consuming process, um, then their lawyers would, uh, or then their um, representatives would take their case and ask them to be assessed by medical doctors. Medical doctors would look at all of the data and they would say, this person has um, only 30% lung capacity. 
or this person only has uh, um, 40% lung capacity. And then they would determine the compensation level from there. Um, unfortunately, um, medical science is incredibly subjective, even at this point. Um, and this goes through, um, and this goes to how doctors um, who are perhaps not in tune with the health risks faced by mining communities are not going to really know um, the levels of dust that people are exposed to in the mine, or they're not going to know um, the effects of mines in the effects of the mine environment on the human body. Um, but at the same time, um, we have to keep in mind that uh, because both of these diseases are diseases of the lung, they can easily be confused for each other. And this is where mining companies really try to inject doubt into people's compensation cases. Uh, you have mining companies try to obfuscate uh, medical data and say, well, you know, this person's not living in a hygienic community. And they try to turn it around and really blame the mining communities for their own diseases. And another way that uh, miners' um, compensation claims are, are really um, subjected to uh, medical doctors' whims is that um, many of these disability uh, claims or compensation claims are really quantified disability claims. So, so let me explain. When um, you have a, a doctor who's looking at um, someone's chest x-ray, they might say, well, this person only has 20% uh, lung capacity. But that number might be different from someone else's, um, from another doctor's assessment. Um, consequently, you have um, um, really, um, really different ways that uh, these claims can be uh, limited and stopped um, by medical doctors. Um, yeah, and finally, I, I think um, one of the um, in 1940, there's going to be a push to have tuberculosis. Uh, included in the Ley de Trabajo for minors, but this is quickly stopped by uh, Avila Camacho, President Avila Camacho in 1941, um, namely because, as he says, he cites data, um, but we know that mining companies were purposely obfuscating the symptoms between the two diseases in order to create doubt. So, yeah. Well, this has been um, a fascinating and um, quite sad, actually, a journey through your really important book. Before we wrap up, though, um, I wondered if you could draw out some connections between your historical work and the present. I'm sure we're living through a global pandemic that taxed the lungs. And <laughs> so... Um, these masks that we've been wearing are, are very are recalling uh, some of the images of the mining masks that were sold in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but um, at, and at, with regards to besides uh, COVID, obviously, and and masks, um, I I really think that we are currently living through a mass uh, disabling event uh, where people with long COVID are are seeing symptoms. 
that um, are going to be questioned by legal authorities in the future um, as they seek perhaps compensation claims for their employers having made them work in person and or for having um, had them exposed to COVID uh, in the office or at their place of work. Um, so I think that there's um, um, there's one parallel there with uh, with my my research, but something an, another topic would be mining. Of course, um, mining is a um, increasingly uh, it already had a, a major presence in Latin America, but increasingly we're seeing more and more foreign companies take an interest in Latin America and its offshore. On, and it's uh, offshore drilling sites. Um, we see um, mining companies from Canada in particular um, really um, intrude into indigenous spaces in not only Central America and in Mexico, um, but also starting to look elsewhere in the global South. So um, I, I wish I could say that uh, um, I paint a rosier picture, um, but unfortunately, I think um, we're seeing um, a, a second resurgence of mining in the 21st century. Well, thank you for that crucial perspective. Rocio, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much, Rachel. And thanks again for having me.